Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we are joined by Chris Mole, who sold his Amazon agency, Molesy, to Brain Labs in 2021. But before we get there, as you'll hear, Chris's blog, Founder On, gets mentioned multiple times in this episode. And I have found a wonderful article detailing the acquisition of Molesy and specifically the earnout period, which I feel you'll really enjoy. So I have linked to that specific article over in our show notes page, which can be found at builttosell.com. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about Chris, who, as I mentioned, sold his company, Molsey, to Brain Labs. And you'll recognize Brain Labs as a former guest of the show, Timo Armu, sold his company to Brain Labs as well. So I will link to that podcast episode as well on the show notes page. But for Chris, as you're listening to today's episode, there's a few things I want you to look out for. One is how to leverage hook products to reel in new customers, how to employ top talent affordably using Chris's innovative hiring approach, how to build to sell even without an exit strategy, how to pinpoint the perfect moment to sell your company, how to forge connections with potential strategic acquires long before you're ready to sell, and how to shrink your earnout period and boost your upfront cash. Here to share with you the full story of Molsey is Chris Mole. Enjoy. Chris Mole, welcome to Build to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. How did you get into the business of Molsey? Explain this company, how you got started. Yeah, so Mol- Molsey was a, an Amazon agency uh, set up about, it's about six years ago now. At the time, What is an Amazon agency? I'm not familiar with that. No, it's a good question. And I think if you ask my parents, they still probably wouldn't understand what it was. Um, <laughs> So effectively, what it turned out to be, although I didn't realize at the time, it was a, a digital, market, digital marketing agency. So running pay-per-click, SEO, data analytics, copyright and graphic design, but all uh, fully on the Amazon platform. So uh, it, it came about, I, I, worked, I worked in sales for a consumer electronics brand. Uh, at the time, pretty much every brand was trying to avoid Amazon. You know, it was like, how do we control Amazon? How do we manage it? How do we not deal with them? Because they were seen as the enemy because they were dropping prices, et cetera. Um, and, and most of our uh, customers at the time were like uh, music stores, things like that. And they were all going bust like every week another customer went. So we thought, well, maybe we should try and like grow Amazon instead of avoid it. You know, what, what would that look like? And it's, it's this weird beast that even, even now with a million employees, there's not really anyone that speaks to you. <laughs> You just have to, here's the tools, figure it out. Uh, and we did that and we grew that electronics brand, you know, to, to significant revenue on Amazon. Um, and that's where I came up for the idea of Molsey to do the same, but for other brands. And I thought I'd invented the, the business model of an agency. I was like, well, I'll hire all these kind of people, you know, sell them to other brands. And there was me thinking, you know, I'd, I'd created the most genius business model of all time. And it probably wasn't until, Six months in, then I realized, oh, okay, people have been doing this for a while. <laughs> and, uh, but, but, it, but it's unusual to focus exclusively on Amazon. Like I've definitely, we just did an interview uh, last week with Mark Wright, who uh, UK-based digital agency owner, 130 employees, Climb Online, I've probably heard of it. 
but he was focused on horizontal uh, platforms. So it wasn't just Amazon. He would do digital marketing for whatever, you know, multiple channels. Um, how did you, how did you decide to focus exclusively on Amazon? So I think because, so I, I viewed Amazon as a retailer because like I say, I, my, I had no experience of marketing or marketing agencies. So it, it would never have dawned on me to, you know, do Facebook, Google, et cetera. So with, with Amazon, even though the Amazon is a marketing platform, it's significantly smaller than Google and Facebook, or it certainly was at the time. As a retailer, there's not really anyone bigger. So, so I saw this opportunity for the world's largest retailer that no one really knew how to deal with because it's all, it's all fully manual. Instead of shipping containers of stock to Walmart or Target, you're shipping like five units to Arkansas, five units to you know Massachusetts, whatever it is. It's like a real hard retail to work with. But if you if you just learn how to use the tools, you, you've got so many levers at your disposal that you can pull, and and small increments because the, because they're so big can have you know the impact of millions of pounds of the sales. So it, for me, it just seemed really odd that other agencies weren't focusing on it. But I think it's because the the other agencies that we ended up competing with were charging like a percentage of ad spend. Um, and the ad spend was just much smaller than than it was on Google and Facebook. And and they had to care about things that they didn't want to care about, like was the pro- product profitable? Was it in stock? Was Amazon, did they have the buy box? So I think it was just a headache really. And so, and, and further down the journey, we would win clients from some of the big network agencies. And, and on the handover, they were like, oh, thank God for that. You know, we hated doing that. <laughs> I'm so happy that you've won that business. Um, Interesting. And so what was your business model? If it wasn't a percentage of the media spend, how did you charge your customers? Uh, so we charge a retainer just for, you know, turning the lights on. Uh, and then it, in most cases, we charge a percentage of the sales on Amazon. Um, because well, first of all, the numbers were much bigger than the ad spend, so there's a much bigger opportunity to earn. But also, <clears throat> because most of the budgets on Amazon, well, it wasn't really budgets for Amazon. It tended it tended to be a salesperson that had a spreadsheet, a P&L for Amazon that said, this is the sale price to Amazon, this is the cost for fulfillment, this is the cost for marketing, this is the cost for warranty, and then this is the cost for Molsey. So if they didn't sell anything, we didn't cost anything uh, effectively. So they were able just to kind of add us as a line on a spreadsheet rather than us have to go and find budget, which was good at the start because we could kind of pitch the fact that we were free. You know, you only pay for us if your sales grow. Um, You're taking all the risk. How did you vet customers? We we didn't at the time. We we just we literally signed you know anyone we could. We were very new business focused. I would say the first the first two people, me and a colleague of mine, were salespeople basically. So we we focused on right. Let's let's sign clients and then you know hire some people that know how to do Amazon. Um, and that I think that naivety, um, uh, you know, paid off in a sense because we. Since then, I've seen a lot of agencies that will scale to a certain size. And then because they don't have a new business function, either like the inbound leads will stop or the network of the founder will have been rinsed. But we were, you know, up, up until we were maybe 15 people, probably 
half the company was salespeople and the other half was actually delivering the business. So to answer your question, we, we kind of, at the start, we just signed everyone we could and then quickly learn, you know, that was a bad idea. These guys are good. Let's double down. But you weren't just selling vaporware in the sense that you, through the consumer electronics brand, had sort of cracked the code on how to use Amazon. Like you, you knew. Yeah, we, 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 knew we knew. We knew how to win on Amazon strategically, and that was that was the bit that was difficult to find in the market. Uh, and then all of the bits that we didn't know how to do were a, a bit more generalized, like how to run the pay-per-click campaigns on Amazon. And the platform was so much more basic than Google. So we were able to hire people that had experience on Google and just teach them the strategies for Amazon. So yeah, we, we were kind of, we were selling the strategy and then quickly hiring the people that would do the work. But like, like I mentioned at the start, for the first year or two of Molsey, people, a lot of brands didn't want to deal with Amazon. So we were kind of selling Amazon, but that was... Uh, we were going into a pitch and almost not mentioning Molsey. We were we were pitching, why should you work with Amazon? And if they agreed, yes, we should work with Amazon. It was kind of like the assumptive close. Well, obviously we'll do it for you because you don't have a team. So yeah, it was it was a, it was an odd. It was a great time looking back on it. You know, you know when you look back after the internet and everything. I think that those were the best memories where we were just going to huge brands and, and almost telling them off <laughs> for not doing a good enough job. Uh, on Amazon. But those huge brands typically have agencies of record where, you know, if you're a giant, you know, if you're a uh, a Canon or a, I'm trying to think of a, a other giant brands that sell through Patagonia, I don't know if they sell through Amazon, but giant, you know, consumer brands have agencies of record and those agencies hold their clients very tightly. And in fact, contractually say, look, you, you know, you if you're going to do marketing, then we need to be the vendor of choice. How did you get around the AOR relationship these brands have with their agencies? Yeah, so it was, so we had two strategies that changed over time. The, the, the first strategy at the start of our journey, well, it wasn't really a strategy. It was just good fortune, really, in that um, because Amazon was a retailer in most companies' eyes, it was being handled by a sales team who had no idea that there was an agency of record over <laughs> here. Um, Perfect. And so we were just doing it. They had no idea. They, they had the ability to sign off trade budgets for retail. Um, and then at the point where it started, especially once we obviously once we joined Brain Labs and, and became like a proper company, um, that we did start butting heads with a lot of these agreements. Uh, but we learned that as long as you could offer something that wasn't a capability of the, of that agency, they could normally find a way around it. Um, so what we did, we created what we called hook products, which was like really, really, really niche parts of what we could do on Amazon. So we every time we'd create a product, we'd say, right, just imagine every client is working with Mediacom. Let's create two or three offerings that would they would still buy from Mediacom, or even they would still buy from an Amazon agency. So one of those was um, Amazon, if, if a brand ships product to Amazon in like the wrong bubble wrap or a slightly different box to the one they promised or the wrong barcode, they just automatically deduct certain fines and fees off, off the invoices. So they're called chargebacks. Um, 
and it and it became apparent to us that a lot of brands have got millions and millions of pounds worth of chargebacks that they just it might represent two percent of their Amazon business. In most cases, they just write it off as like a a cost of doing business with Amazon. Uh, so we saw that as an opportunity because where there's cost, there's opportunity. I think uh, Bezos said it best: "Your margin is my opportunity." Uh, so we we hired a couple of people from Amazon that were basically the other the other side of that process. They were the ones at Amazon that were dealing with these claims and issues. And we created an offering that said, we'll help you create a business case to reclaim this money. Um, and anything we win, there's no fee. Anything we win, we get 20%. So it's like the kind of no win, no fee. And it um, we just never got a no. Like any brand that we pitched it to, yes. And it was, it didn't work. It didn't work as well as we thought as a cross-sell because normally we were dealing with like a CFO or a supply chain contact. So it was a great way of signing those blue chip clients, but it didn't prove to be a great way of then cross-selling into media. But the only, the only areas where it did work, the process of reclaiming these chargebacks required us to have access to their Amazon account. So as soon as we got access to their account, we were able to run audits on their media and then say, look, you're working with agency X. Do you realize they're wasting 24% of spend? And so that was our strategy, really. Try and rather than waiting three years to pitch for some business, let's try and figure out what we can sell them tomorrow. And then we'll worry about how we cross sell that into some more business. I love the fact that you recruited right out of Amazon these two people that focus on chargebacks. And it's Exactly the opposite of type of person I would have thought you would have recruited. When I think of agency, good or bad, I think of madmen. And I think of the the kind of classic agency employee who's very creative, loves to pitch, uh, and and would reel at the idea of an Amazon agency working for some, you know, uh agency that focuses exclusively on the the kind of most commoditized part of yeah. e-commerce, this sort of like all about logistics, boring part of e-commerce. They want to be working on like sexy TV ads and cool digital yeah. campaigns that are going to run on, you know, like mass networks. The idea of like going to work for some Amazon agency must have been a tough sell. How did you get people to come work for you? I guess everyone's heard of Amazon. So it's, it again, we were kind of selling when we were hiring the early employees, we were selling the Amazon dream rather than the come work for a badly funded start. It's going to be great. <laughs> um, and I guess because the platform was quite basic, because we had the overall strategic knowledge of Amazon and how the bits go together, we were able to hire relatively junior people to do the work. So it was, it was kind of, this is the very early stages. It was like, we really want you to come work here because we need people. And they're like, well, I really need a job because I've got not got a job. Um, and it, it actually it actually benefited us as we scaled up because as, as COVID came, obviously Amazon was one of the, the companies that really benefited. There, there was two things that helped us scale and, and really ride the wave at that stage. The first was the fact that we'd, we'd managed to create our operating processes with relatively inexperienced generic skill sets. So we we weren't hiring Amazon experts with, who were very expensive in the market because there was a real shortage. So where some of our competitors were having to spend 
70, 80,000 pounds per person, we were able to, you know, significantly reduce that with, with the people we brought in. But also, um, for some reason, and I can't, I can't really remember the strategy other than it seemed exciting at the time. We opened an office in Hong Kong. We opened an office in Spain. Um, just because we were like, well, let, we've got this opportunity as an Amazon agency before there's thousands of them. Let's take over the world. So we set up entities in Hong Kong and, and Spain. And then as soon as COVID hit and we needed to scale, it was like, well, we've got three places we can hire now. And actually, it turned out the, the, the local talent in Spain, and then we ended up opening an office in Brazil as well. There was much less local competition for those guys because Amazon was much smaller in those countries. So we ended up, you know, our, our team was getting poached every day on LinkedIn in the UK, but in Spain and Brazil, they were kind of, there was a bit of a moat around them, which is great when we, because I think in COVID we scaled, uh, it was something like 15 people to 50 people in about four months in lockdown. Um, so it was, we were just hiring, hiring and signing clients <laughs> over that period of time. That's incredible because, of course, the explosion of people needing to buy online and obviously Amazon was the place that they went to do that. And yep. so all these brands needed help. Amazing. You mentioned badly funded startup, which I think is is fun. How did you finance this company? Was it all you in the beginning? Did you have investors or partners? So I set the company up myself. Uh, we, we kind of remortgaged the house and put, I think we put £15,000 in, something like that, just to almost just like to pay, a salary, pay myself some kind of salary. Um, but the, the company actually started not as an Amazon agency. It started as a, a, a more of a generic sales agency that was helping brands get into retail. But it, it became apparent, two things became apparent quickly. One, everyone's problem was Amazon. Um, and two, all those other retailers were dependent on human beings making decisions like, yes, we will range that product. No, we won't range it. Let's speak in three months. And it was, it was clear that there'd be a lot of just waiting around if we were dealing with normal retailers, whereas Amazon was just a set of tools that if we could get really good at using it, there wasn't really anything standing in the way of the scale. Um, so fortunately, I mean, an agency business is, is quite easy, really, in that you've got clients paying you money and then people doing the work that kind of scales um, in parallel. So we were always able to sign a client and then hire someone uh, retrospectively to service it. So we, we probably never used that 15,000. It just kind of, it was mm. there as, as a safety buffer. And did you um, keep 100% of the equity the whole way through or did you, did you have so, a partner? So we, I took, I, I took investment about year two, uh, where we, I think, I think about fifteen percent of the equity, um, in return for investment in the business. The reality was we didn't really need the money, uh, but obviously we got some money, uh, and and were kind of pressured to use it by the investors. What well, at that stage we were kind of coming up against these like wave makers, Mediacom. We were coming up against these big companies, and like I said, we had no idea <laughs> what was good about them, what was bad about them. So we brought, uh, I think it's three, three or four people on at that point that had either 
um, built and sold a digital agency because I knew that that was my end goal. Uh, or they worked in senior positions within those big agencies that we were trying to compete with. So it was really to try and get some some knowledge in place. Uh, but also, as much as I didn't enjoy it uh, later on, I kind of asked them to you know hold me accountable. Uh, you know, like we've got an opportunity here where we're on a wave and we're quite near the front of it, but you need to put me under some pressure to hit some numbers. Otherwise, it's easy just to be like, oh, we didn't hit, we didn't hit the number this month, but there's always next month. And I used to hate those meetings. But looking back, you know, there's no way that we would have we would have grown the way we did without them. Interesting. So you gave up 15% of your equity in return for some investment. How did you value the company at that early stage? Like what methodology did you do? Multiple revenue was, even uh? Yeah, I think I think it was valued at like two times revenue. Uh, the reality was it was so small at that stage that it was it was just kind of like a finger in the air. And going into it, I always kind of thought in my head, a lot of people start a business with someone else. So they start with 50%. So I always thought I'll use one 50% to try and make the other 50% as valuable as possible. I think by the time we sold, I had 75%. So we didn't need to, we didn't need to give away too much. But actually, one year before the acquisition, I sold 10% of my shares to I guess to take money off the table, just as like a, if we're going to really go for this, I need to de-risk and and not have all my eggs in one basket. <laughs> and it worked. It worked quite well. Obviously, once you've done the acquisition, you kind of work out what it would have been worth. But I think the 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 ability to let me think, well, at the very worst, it's been a success. Now let's just try and drive it as hard as we can. I'd love to dig in further there. So where were you at when you decided to take 10% uh, off the table? In other words, sell 10%. Uh, because in the first sale, you raised 15%, but it wasn't to put money in your jeans. It was to fund this growth of the company. It's next level with these competitors coming on. It sounds like in the second raise where you sold 10%, it was motivated to, to quote, de-risk yourself personally. And so yeah. walk me through that. I think when people think of a minority recapitalization where there is a an investment being made in the company, it's to grow the company, not to enrich the founder. So walk me through how that how that all worked. Yeah. Well so the idea the idea first came, I still remember now sitting down um in March 2020, listening to Boris Johnson tell us all that we were going to be locked in our house, and just and just saying to my wife, "Is that it gone? Like all of that work, and it, like it's probably going to go bust." And and even though that feeling didn't last long, because suddenly we were like, "Oh wow, Amazon's still going, it's growing." There was just something about like I knew that I wanted some kind of de-risk. Um, but at the time, I would have had to sell a lot of equity to basically we, what we said was, let's pay off the mortgage. And then it's like, we've come out of it, at the very least, with a win. Um, so so obviously, I knew how much I needed to, to pay off the mortgage and then just work backwards from there and said, well, I don't really want to give away more than 10%. So we've got to grow the company to this value in order for that 10% to be worth that. And, and I actually used the same... Uh, 
the same strategy, I guess, for working out what to sell the company for. Because we had, before Brain Labs, we had 12 other companies approach us over the period of probably seven or eight months. Um, but I've, I've kind of figured out, well, this is what I want to do with the money. We want, we want to buy a new house, like our forever home. We want to be able to not live like a luxury lifestyle without working, but worst case, know that we're set for life. And then figure out how much I'd have to pay the tax man, figure out how much equity I've got left. And then I was I pretty much knew if an offer comes in for that amount of money, I'm gonna take it because that's that's what I need for all the things we want to do. So so roughly how much money did you have left on the mortgage at the time? Uh, I think it was like three hundred thousand. So you're thinking, okay, I, I need to pay off the mortgage. So three hundred thousand. If I can get a three million dollar valuation, three million pound valuation for this business, I can sell ten percent of it, put three hundred pounds against the mortgage, and still own whatever seventy five percent of the business. Right? Yeah. That was the calculus you were doing in your head. Yeah. And so, who did you get to buy ten percent of the business? Like who 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 did who did that transaction? Uh, so it was, it was actually um, a, a guy that had previously sold his digital agency, had done very well for himself, and now has a like a, um, a digital agency incubator and accelerator. Effectively, um, I think normally they invest a bit nearer the start of yeah of, um, of a business for a kind of larger return. But I think the opportunity was there for probably a smaller return on the money than would be normal, but over a very quick period of time, because we were like, yeah. we're doing this now, our aim is to sell it this time next year. Um, the, probably the valuation we did that the 10% at was below what it was certainly in terms of multiples, et cetera, it was less than we were. How much was your, time. how much was your revenue at the time? Ballpark. I, it was probably about 3 million, I think. Yeah. So, so he got in at like one, one times, Revenue, a discount against what you you sold the first tranche to, but it was valuable to you because you wanted to put it into the mortgage and not into the business. So yeah, yeah, it was. I think I knew just knowing how my head works. I knew that the security would allow me to be a bit more a bit more brave with the decisions because naturally I'm quite risk averse. In so a lot of the big decisions we had to make where we were investing. EBITDA back into the business. I had, I, we had a we had a spreadsheet that we called the Bible, which was just like everything, everything about the business and what was happening and what might happen was on this one sheet. Um, and the tab that I looked at was the cash flow forecast that would give me like about seven worst case scenarios. This is the worst case. This is the worst worst case. This is the worst worst case. <laughs> um, and I would just whenever we made a decision, I'd stick it in the sheet and be like. Even worse, 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 worse case, we're okay, so let's do it. So I had to kind of like train my brain how to how to take risks. Whereas doing this um, just kind of it just allowed me to really go for it in that last year. Yeah, it sounds like it. Knowing that you're, you know, you've got that first rung of Maslow's hierarchy of needs taken care of, you're not going to fall off that rung. You've got security and a house, so like a roof over your head, et cetera, and that gives you a sense of. Uh, of uh, of security, it's interesting because I think that's a, a a major you know factor in a lot of complete outright 
sales or at least majority recapitalizations when a private equity company comes in and they've just got very deep pockets. And so a risk to them is minor relative to you. It might be massive. And yeah. so it's, it's a point where uh, it may make sense for another owner to come in and, and, uh, and own your business. So I, th- I appreciate you sharing that. Um, you've mentioned a couple times, I've seen some of your blog posts. And by the way, everybody should check out founderon.com, your blog. It's great. And I'm excited to be a follower of yours there. Um, in one of your posts, you talked about this idea of building to sell. Like Your intent was to sell. And again, for a lot of people, particularly creative industries, agencies, and again, I know you are a a unique agency and and, and I shouldn't probably lump you in the same kind of group, but the idea of building to sell is a bit squeamish for people. Like they they kind of revolt at that idea. They think, oh, that's that's dirty. That's the the underbelly of entrepreneurship. It's such a a money grubbing thing to do. In your case, it sounds like it was your intent from the start. Maybe walk through that. Yeah, it does sound bad, um, but it was the goal. I, 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 my passion wasn't Amazon or marketing. It was, it was Molsey was an, an opportunity that I saw to kind of see a gap in the market, etc. But actually, since doing it, and obviously um, since leaving Brain Labs, you kind of start thinking back to the good old days, and and, and I think as a result, um, any business that I do now would be a business designed for me to run and enjoy and invest in uh, because there's something about growing a business to sell that is quite uncomfortable. You can't really, where you're looking at like, well, we could invest in wellness programs or we could hire another salesperson, but you've got to make decisions which are for the exit really, rather than to, to make to make the experience enjoyable for you as the founder. I don't think I enjoyed a lot of the journey uh, as we start to scale because because we did it in a relatively short uh, time frame, four years. Um, and it, every time we hit like a different milestone of numbers of people, like maybe every 15 or 20 people, just everything had to change. Like all the processes were wrong. Suddenly it's like we've got to build more desks, we've got more office space. Um, and I, I didn't really enjoy those parts of it. I enjoyed working with the team, working with clients, signing new business. Um, and, and that's the reason why eventually I decided to sell, other than obviously the, the right offer coming in. Uh, we, we had about 80 people at the end, and it just wasn't my skill set, really. Um, my skill set was 10 people around a table with a whiteboard. How do we fix this tomorrow? Or how do we fix this now? Rather than how do we get people along on the journey with this strategy? How do we communicate it to all the different offices? Uh, just it lacked, I guess it lacked some kind of pace that I, was the bit that excited me. So I think now that I've kind of had the um, the exit with Molsey, my, my aspiration isn't just to keep building businesses to exit. I think now it's like, how can I build a business that I really love working at I can really enjoy working with the team and not thinking just constantly, right, let's push this until it breaks and then move on to the next stage. Isn't that interesting? So building to sell, creating, having the liquidity of that, having the wealth that you've created has caused you to 
now aspire to almost like a lifestyle business. One, I don't want to say that in a pejorative way, but one in which you were thinking more about culture and making investments that are perhaps less uh, easily tied to valuation. I think so, yeah. Give me an example. You mentioned uh, hiring that salesperson versus that wellness program. What sorts of decisions did you make and 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 how did you prioritize building to sell versus creating a lifestyle business? Like the the wellness thing versus you know uh, investing in a website. I think that's a nice one. What other sorts of decisions did you make differently because you were building to sell versus chronic creating a kind of a lifestyle business? So I think um, I don't know if it's going to properly answer the question or not. Uh, tell me if it doesn't. But sure. um, I guess one of the things around culture that i noticed was it so culture just naturally happens i guess at the start because no one's no one's got time to write down right what's our culture and let's make sure we stick to it so our culture naturally was uh tenacity pace ambition because we were trying to build this thing big enough to not go bust initially and then big enough to ride this wave and try and kind of exit at the top of it um and and as a result of that, the people you bring in are kind of fully invested in that because you're literally all sat around in an office and, and living and breathing it. As we started to get bigger and we were hiring people maybe that had worked at uh, proper companies before and, and um, that's when we started getting problems with like people, people were getting stressed or people had issues with like we we need to not grow as fast we need to not sign clients because things aren't working anymore and, and we were like well of course they're not working we need to change them and we need to and and we spent probably six months creating wellness programs or like should we give people more holiday or like give them their birthday or should we send them gifts like we were like like very non-hr people trying to create hr <laughs> solutions and then and then it kind of dawned on us, maybe we just need to be a bit more honest in the interview. <laughs> so instead of like, come work for us, you're going to get a free gift and extra days holiday, but hide the fact that, and it's going to be, you know, a bit crazy and things are going to change. Our interviews started to become like, it's tough here. It's going to be, it's going to be a hard place to work. You might not enjoy some days, but you'll probably accelerate your career a bit faster than you would if you were you know in a, a more corporate environment and it and it just fixed the problem uh really quickly we we kind of got people that thrived on that challenge um but obviously eventually we did implement proper hr strategies and uh and and those things but there was that short period like a kind of gangly teenage phase where we were just like trying to put classes over things that we were like, maybe we just need to be a bit more honest with people on the way in, <laughs> but it's going to be, it's going to be constant and change and difficulty. So that kind of, uh, fix some of the problems. I, I love that. that. I, I guess <laughs> that's a great response. It reminds me of a buddy of mine does a three-step interview process. First steps in the process would be, as you imagine, a screening interview, then an in-depth interview. And then this third interview, uh, the objective is to try to convince the candidate not to take the job. Yeah, like his I, whole like his whole stated purpose is to try to talk to the candidate out of the job, describe all the bad things and the bad parts of the culture and all that yeah. so forth. And 
Uh, it's for the reasons you state. It's because he wants to be super transparent about the culture and doesn't want to change it. And I love it. I think that's great. I think we're, you know, have been socialized in, in the world of entrepreneurship to think everybody's got to have like, you, you know, be their full fulfillment at work and they've got to have a best friend. And like not every environment is that. And so being transparent about that, I think that works as long as you're transparent, right? And I think actually you end up building good relationships because you kind of, there's something about just being constantly slightly off comfortable that brings a team together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it was Bill Gates who said like, he'd, he'd figure out like how like a project would take or how many people you would need. And he'd take like, he'd have like 70% of the, that, that staff on it or that head count. So like everybody was just slightly stressed all the time. So <laughs> I love it. I love it. So let's get into the sale because you mentioned in, in the months leading up to Molsey, you had, a number of inbound inquiries. Like maybe walk through that. Were you seeking them out or soliciting them? Are they were they completely unsolicited? What would you describe that process? Um, so I guess technically unsolicited. One of the things we we did um, again in the same way we didn't know what a, a digital agency was. We also didn't know what content marketing was, but we were kind of doing it by accident. So we from quite early on with Molsey, we would share either like controversial views on retail, the future of retail, or like here we are at Amazon's office learning about things. And um, so we, we made the, the kind of journey of Malsey quite visible. Um, and and I, I guess because I always knew one day I wanted to sell the business, I would always like try and connect on LinkedIn with people that I thought maybe one day might want to buy the business. Um, with the, In my head, with the hope, you know, I'd connect to them. They'd look at my profile and go, "Let's buy the company." It was it wasn't quite that quick, but probably over two or three years, all of the people that ended up contacting us had been following us for for a hmm. long period of time and, and not engaging with us in any way, not liking any of the posts, not commenting, not messaging, but I guess just there, in, you know, getting it whether they want it or not, getting the the post. So I think it probably got to the stage where someone just got told you need an Amazon capability. It's like, oh, uh, I think probably the the view was that we were a lot bigger than we were just because we would encourage a lot of the team to post on LinkedIn if they wanted to, uh, even though we knew that it meant they were going to get poached more more often. But it kind of gave that um, impression just of, of size, you know, because it wasn't just me and a couple of other people posting all the time. Uh, so... All of, all of the uh, approaches that we had were kind of people that I'd heard about or knew about, but a lot of the, a lot of the offers were like an amount of money and then some kind of share swap or, you know, so, so, something linked to the, the parent company. Um, and then obviously, they all, as soon as you start getting offers, they, it all, they all look good in the sense that you just start imagining, well, that'd be good because that's a lot more money than I've got now. But then it wasn't the amount of money that I decided that I needed in order to kind of fulfill uh, because probably Molsey will be my one opportunity. You know, it's yeah, maybe something else will happen, but I had to kind of assume this is my go at it. So if I, if I don't get that, then I'm probably never going to get that. Um, so the, what the was that for you? Say again. What was that for you? If we're not going to get that, 
and oh, we never get you know, like how much my money it's then it then i'll probably I'll, I'll probably not get the you know the house that we're looking for or all that kind of stuff so yeah because we knew what we needed and that this probably would be our only shot at getting it that kind of led a lot of those discussions and obviously we we never just said no never speak to us again the great thing about m a approaches is you can always say no and then grow a bit and then speak to people later on uh, so we always tried to you know be very um nice to people that was always our business strategy work hard and be nice to people but and, they would uh, they would come to you directly as i understand it not through an advisor that you hired they would just come to you directly connect with you and and engage you in some sort of conversation that must have taken like you must have had a few conversations to get to the point where they put a value on the table. Is that right? Um, Not always. Sometimes they would say in a meeting, like this is roughly what we're thinking, or they would, they would give information about how they were going to structure a deal. And Um, and what would they tell you? Like how much detail would they give you in, in those meetings? um, There was never like LOI style. Here's the terms, but it might be like, um roughly this amount of money plus five percent shares in this or or some kind of uh percentage of earn out linked to growth or, or whatever it was but often it would be a company that had already acquired an amazon agency for example so that it like limited our prospects in an earn out because we would be very much just like the uk bit or in some cases you could tell they were just buying us to for the clients and then they would get rid of us which wasn't a great opportunity for the team um but with brain labs it was i guess the financials were good but also there was there was a culture fit they were also very fast growth uh very ambitious founder led and it just kind of i wasn't expecting all the boxes to get ticked and with brain labs it did and after 12 goes you're so used to just being like here we go again no, no, no. And it was just, I kind of left the call and I was like, I think, I think it's yes. <laughs> this is, Interesting. This is I want to get into Brain Labs because people may, uh, long-time listeners of the show will, will know uh, Timo Armu sold his agency to Brain Labs. So we'll, we'll, that name may, may, uh, may be familiar to people. I want to get to Brain Labs in a minute, but I, still, I want to just dig in a little further on the actual kind of failed attempts to buy your business, if I, if you will, the yeah. dozen or so folks that sort of approached you. Ballpark, you're, you're 80 people at this time. Ballpark revenue, what would your turnover be, Ballpark, at this stage of the game? It's, it was probably like four and a half million, something like that. Four and a half million uh, pounds yeah. turnover. And are you starting to get any sense of what the market, and, and profitable, like Ballpark, so, we, so our strategy was always top line growth at any cost. And it was, uh, I mean, I wouldn't change it because of the outcome we ended up getting. But I think, was it, would I do it again? It would have been relatively easy to run our business very profitably. But we were so focused on revenue growth that we just reinvested as much EBITDA as we could and probably wasted a lot of money just mm. on, like, uh, because... Because Amazon was this shiny new thing, pretty much all the approaches we got, there, there was never a mention of EBITDA. It just wasn't a, a factor. It was 
people wanting to grow the one that's growing the people wanting to buy the one that's growing the fastest because um a lot of these marketing groups uh when they're kind of pitching to their private equity investors or or if they're looking to roll up to, for their own trade sale they've got google they've got facebook and they need this third one that's a bit awkward um so actually probably in a lot of cases um the businesses that were pitching to bias probably didn't even care what our numbers were they just wanted like the impact on the multiple when they sell their business because it makes them a bit sexier or a bit more unique so interesting so they so were thinking about it in the context of their multiple that if they could I tick mean, every yeah. box we got facebook we got amazon well, that's my assumption i don't know if that's i don't know if that is the truth but um there was a short period of time where everyone wanted an amazon agency and there weren't many that had scaled like beyond lifestyle business um so it almost didn't really matter about the numbers at, at that stage certainly not ebitda did you get a sense chris that you know musical chairs we all played it as kids that the music was about to stop for amazon agencies in other words once the big buyers had bought themselves each an Amazon agency, the market for Amazon agents would, would crash. Did you get a sense that the music was about to stop? I, I definitely worried about it. Uh, and we, we always spoke internally about we're on this wave. Let's make sure that we get out before it drops. Uh, and obviously, COVID was a huge accelerator of Amazon's own growth. And looking back now, retrospectively, I think we, we would have had a tough year the following year after we we were acquired because obviously the the the, the kind of covid e-commerce growth normalized a bit um plus like interest rates cost of living crisis ukraine um yeah the, the world became a very different place quickly yeah. so i think yeah. i think we probably exited at a good time uh and and as a result we became part of a much bigger machine at a time when it became a bit harder. And actually, um, at a time where a lot of those Amazon budgets had started to move to the CMO, like a lot of those CMOs were like, what are you doing spending marketing money on Amazon? You're a salesperson. This is my territory. Um, and we had no network of CMOs and obviously Brain Labs and all these network agencies, that's their bread and butter. So I think we timed it well um more out of fear than strategy <laughs> yeah yeah so you're roughly four and a half million pounds in turnover you're getting these offers you'd sold the first tranche although it was the back of a napkin valuation and it's very early at around two times revenue the second tranche at one times ballpark where were these offers coming in ballpark uh at in terms of multiple of revenue um it was almost impossible to tell because they were all structured so differently some mm. some were even just like here's an enormous salary and some and you'll still retain this amount of shares some were here's a couple of million pounds you know so that you've got so you can buy the nice house but you've really got to work for the next bit some of the units for five years you know and it was there was no trend. It would have been easier if they don't if we just sent out a template and said, please fill out this <laughs> so we can compare them. Uh but actually 
it was so it really came down to things like I'm going to be I'm going to work here for the next two or three years. Do I want to work here? And with Brain Labs, um, you know, I was like, this is this is a place that's going to be cool to work because they're all about the growth and disrupting the market. So <clears> all of <throat> them had some sort of back-end payment, again, either an earnout, a share swap, a salary, where a lot of the value was, quote, at risk in you know, your role as a division of their company. Yeah. So I was either uh, putting my faith in my, myself or ourselves or actually in them. You know, a lot of it was shares in the parent group with no real control over, you know, what, uh, how that how that performed. Could you ballpark the downstroke, meaning the cash component? Like when they pitched it to you, they're like, hey, Chris, come work for us. We'll give you a couple million pounds up front. And if you like hit it out of the park as a division of our company, you know, like you could get this in the form of an earnout. Like, did, did, I'm trying to get a sense of the proportion of these deals. And again, I know there's a variety of them, they're all over the map that were sort of downstroke cash up front versus the the future payment were they like 20% down and 80% in the future 30% down 70 like could you give me any sense of the proportion yeah so they were, they were probably all they were probably all like 25% down 75% opportunity but not not in the sense but not based on the true value of the business so because because we'd just gone through COVID and because our numbers were doing this, um, they were kind of like open-ended earnouts. So if if the business continues to grow at this at this pace, look what you could make. But the reality was it's not gonna grow at that pace. So it was so if you the the upfront cash as a percentage of what probably was the value of the business, it was maybe 75%. But in the way that the deals were visualized with kind of like, you know, everything going our way with the wind behind us, then it was a small proportion, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, for sure. But you knew that the likelihood of continuing at that breakneck speed was low. Uh, so I, I did, but but... But still had faith that it was possible, particularly joining a bigger business and, and going after some of those bigger budgets. We'd also started to introduce uh, some other service offerings, which in hindsight were maybe complicating what we did. We probably strayed away from the fact that an agency business is quite simple. We should have stuck, stuck to that. But we were like, here's because suddenly with the air now, um, you go from Here's a business where if we grow it next year, that'd be great. But if actually it's in three years' time, that's fine as well. And then suddenly an error is, right, I've got a set amount of time where I've got hit specific targets. So we were like, right, here's the number we got hit. Let's just start creating all sorts of offerings where we can like hook into clients. So we probably overcomplicated it a bit to our detriment. Um, but what one of the investors... Um, to, uh, get, gave me advice as we were kind of entertaining all these offers, which is you've got to you've got to be happy with day one money, like whatever whatever earnout is promised, whatever mechanics, but the back end you've got to be happy if it's just day one because you don't know 
Amazon could go bust the day after or whatever it is. Um, and obviously, um, I definitely went for the air now, but I was still happy the day that I signed the bit of paper uh, with with kind of the initial deal. And I, I would give, I would pass that advice on, I think, to anyone. You just don't know, no matter what's going on in your business, what kind of, um, what kind of, you know, growth trends you've got. You just don't know what lies past that SBA. So just make sure that one way or another you're happy with day one's money. How much did platform risk play into the structure of the deals you were being offered? We talk a lot about something called Switzerland structure where you're trying to lessen your dependency on any supplier, customer, employee, stakeholder. In this case, you were all in Amazon, which was great in the sense that as Amazon grew, it's like the rising tide lifts all boats. And at the same time, you were all in Amazon. There was no diversity. You were an Amazon digital agency. And I would imagine some of the potential acquirers would have viewed that as platform risk. Did, did that conversation come up at all? It was, it was only seen as a benefit at the time. I think because of, I think, I think if we'd done other things, it would have been seen as a negative because people specifically wanted that capability. Um, I think probably the, the risk with Amazon would be some kind of regulation. That's probably the great, you know, like the ads business being split from retail, a bit like if you're a TikTok agency, there's probably the risk that, you know, TikTok is just banned <laughs> from, from the countries you're operating in. But the reality was, Amazon was this kind of third major marketing platform that was still in its infancy and growing fast. But they just needed that capability. And they they knew it was so different because of the fact that Amazon's retailer first and immediate platform second, although Amazon will beg to differ now. Um, they, they knew they just needed to buy that capability because it was so hard to create. So it was def- it was purely an advantage. There was never a there was never mentioned. The only time it was ever questioned actually. Uh, I can't remember why, but we went to see a venture capitalist in London who'd expressed an interest in investing a bit before I took some money off the table. And I'd never had any dealings with venture capital. The first slide on the deck was just like a summary of Amazon. And we spent like 40 minutes where he was like grilling me on Amazon's business model saying, I just don't think it's going to work. And I was like, well, it's definitely going to work. I, they're one of the biggest companies in the world. Don't worry about Amazon. They're fine. Can we get onto our slides? Like, I just don't think Amazon's sustainable. It's just not going to work. So it, it is this kind of beast that just everyone buys from it, but no one really understands. Well said. So let's get into Brain Labs. How did you come to know the Brain Labs folks? How did this sort of like, tell me the first step that they made or you made to them? Um, so actually it was one, one of their, non, I think he was a non-exec director used to work a long time ago in an agency with one of our investors. Um, he kind of just shared shared to him we're in the market for an Amazon capability. They had recently taken private equity investments, so they were they were part of a roll-up. And because one of the things I loved so much about Brain Labs was their ambition, they'd kind of taken the private equity investment and I think they'd already bought five companies uh, before us. Whereas a couple of the other roll-up agencies had taken investment and then maybe kind of 12 or 18 months in hadn't bought anyone yet. And that, that kind of 
to me screamed that indecisiveness, but maybe they were just being really careful. So, so that appealed to me. Um, so Brain Labs had gotten a check from a private equity group to go acquire companies. Yeah, that was very much their strategy. They were a, they were a Google SEO business, and they wanted to gain those capabilities, um, and and very you know very much scaling up for world domination, which suited us. Um, and Dan, the founder, uh, I think I think Brain Labs now is like ten years old, so you could almost on a graph plot Brain Labs journey in terms of numbers of people and revenue, and just overlay Molsey. Hmm. Um, so just lots of things, lots of things seemed to make sense. The fact that he wanted to meet up walking around a park in London rather than in an office with a PowerPoint definitely suited my kind of my, my style of meeting as well. Um, and yeah, it just it just felt good. We just chatted about. He explained, you know, when when he did his uh, kind of part exit to private equity, how it felt, and it was it was very much just like. It felt like he was giving me advice as well as, I guess, pitching, whereas a lot of the big agencies had just been, look how big we are. You know, of course, you want to join here. We work with L'Oreal or the Bacardi, whatever it is. Um, yeah, it was actually it, on, on the walk, I think we just agreed, you know, should we do this? I was like, yeah. And then I was like, how does it work? <laughs> I've never done this before. And, and that was when we we kind of, uh, hired an M&A agency who were amazing. But I think slightly unusually, unusually we kind of went to them with, um, here's the company that's going to buy us. <laughs> um, if you could take it from here. Um, and, and the experience with those guys was amazing. A company called SI Partners based in London. And, and it genuinely, me and, me and Dan, the founder, we used to meet up for a walk every two weeks, just discuss life, discuss how the business is going, but never worry about the negotiations or we've spotted this issue or, there's, you know, there's a bit of a challenge over these, whatever it was, we got to just kind of maintain the high five, you know, cartwheel culture. And then the, the M&A advisors got to do all the hard work of, you know, making the numbers work and make sure due diligence went smoothly. Which That's uh, really interesting. I just did an interview about three weeks ago with a guy named Tyler Smith, who he had exactly the same strategy in the sense that he hired an M&A firm. They, they instructed him not to talk price with the buyer. The buyer of his company was this giant billionaire who uh, made efforts to ingratiate himself with Tyler and, and connect and personally uh, you know, spend time together. And it sounds like Dan did the same thing, but 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 never did they sort of get into the weeds of the negotiation directly. They always let the the M and A professionals do their work, which which sounds like you did as well. I think what 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 I really liked was that Dan himself had created this business, had kind of had kind of a partial exit with the private equity. So I was I, I was able to just you know ask him like how did it feel when it happened and what have you done since how's your life changed and um, without wanting to plug the blog the idea of the blog it is really like the blog that I wanted to read when I was going through it the idea is that it's like not how how does the M and A process work or how what happened on the day that I signed the deal it was like how did I feel when I was doing it. Because I was just like a sponge, desperate for that information, 
because I wanted to like prepare myself mentally for is this going to be amazing or is it going to be really normal or um, is due diligence going to take over my life? Is it going to be horrific? Um, so I think, again, that's one of the reasons why Brain Labs seemed like a great fit because it was an individual who was kind of in the same position who was able to share some of that experience, whereas the people you're dealing with at a big network agency are, you know, they've got a budget that's their job to to allocate rather than the, them individually that are feeling the feelings, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. How did the Spectre evaluation come up? Um, so they just they just made an offer. It was actually, weirdly, I just had a hernia operation and uh, I just got out of hospital and I was on like every drug you can imagine that was offered to me. And Dan wanted to have a call because it was—I think it was quite time sensitive. I can't remember why from from their side. And I was like, "I'm just warning you, I'm not—I'm not fully with it." And, and we had this call anyway. And I was—and then he gave some details of the deal just verbally. I wrote them down, and then I—I I looked at them the next morning. I'm like, I've literally no idea if that's real or not. Like, I, I can't remember the conversation. <laughs> so I had to message him and go, "Would you just be able to pop that on email?" Just that I, you know, I've put enough zeros and decimal points here and there and everywhere. But yeah, they, they just made an offer that was really straightforward. No shares, no equity, just here's an amount of money and here's some more if you, you know, hit, hit some numbers. And that, that simplicity just suited, <laughs> suited my brain, you know, because I'm not an M&A expert. I don't really understand how these things work. But that just the salesman in me knew we've got some numbers to go after now, and this is what we'll get if we do it. Got it. Got it. Are you able to share any detail about sort of what what the cash component was versus what the earnout was? Anything that you're you're able to share would be helpful. Uh, so, so kind of the total that we ended up with was like very low, very very low eight figures. Uh, in dollars, all very high seven figures in pounds. Uh, probably the upfront element of that was seventy five percent. And the earnout was that tied to top line revenue or profitability, your client retention? How did they structure the earnout piece? Yeah, it was purely based on revenue. Uh, the opportunity was there to make a lot more than that. Um, it was kind. Of, it was almost open ended. Um, but like I say, the, it, the market changed a lot. Also, I, I don't know. I'd, so I, I was running the, the business of Molsey. I was never client-facing. I didn't know how to do any of the work on Amazon. And, and kind of weirdly, very quickly became redundant, you know, as in um, I didn't really know what to do anymore. I didn't know how to pull the levers in the same way because I maybe didn't have access to the same information that I had. So the first the first year of earnout, we we managed to hit, and it was like the old school hard way of just like every deal. Like, can we get that invoice? Can we get another five grand? Can we? That was just like it was a real the hardest bit of Molsey was that first year's earnout by far because I knew that we either did it or didn't do it. There was no like, oh well, there's next year, and that was by far the most stressful part of the journey for me and which is fine uh, but 
but I, in my head, I thought that would be the easy bit. And that would be the kind of lying on the beach, you know, living the dream. And then suddenly it's like, oh my God, it's so much harder this. And, and suddenly, because I'd obviously got the money for selling the company, um, suddenly I was like, well, loads of people are relying on me now. Some of the, uh, some of the employee shareholders, the investors, like, so I was kind of suddenly doing it for them. It was just really, um, it was really stressful. Um, and I think when we hit that first year, it was not it subconsciously. I think I, my body just shut down and went, we're done. <laughs> this is someone else's fight now. Um, because I guess I'd achieved the, you know, the income from the deal that I was aiming for. In fact, it was more because we managed to hit some of the year now and it was just, I just was a terrible employee, not not in, not like a bad behaved employee, but I realized that I, in order to operate, I need to see like a bigger picture because uh, I'm because I like to try and solve problems or whatever. And if I don't know the reason why things are being asked, then I, then I can't do that. So, yeah, I, I, I just got in the way. I, I think I, I saw one of the other podcasts with um where someone said similar, you kind of go from being everyone coming to you going, Chris, 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 can we do this, can we do this? To being like, Oh, I thought you'd I thought you'd already left. It's like, oh okay, probably should show my face a bit more often. <laughs> uh, but it is weird be, knowing that you're kind of just getting in the way. And so so before leaving, you know, I had to have quite a few of those conversations where I was like, I just don't know if I'm helping you or getting in the way. Like I think I'm just blocking someone from doing a better job. Uh, and that's when ultimately I ended up leaving. Talk to me about the around structure. So it sounds like it was in tranches, annual like payments. Was it in perpetuity, or or was there was it like a structured like three year earnout, where each like a payout for each year was was available? Yeah, so it's so it's three years with like a cliff and a max. So as long as we got above the cliff, then we were then we got something. If we got below the cliff, then we we basically lost that. For that yeah um so yeah that was that was exciting and motivating but yeah very very stressful knowing that it's like happening or not happening and it's still huge amounts of money that are life-changing amounts of money that could maybe just not happen so the, so the structure um you you had to hit a top line revenue target if if you did and that exceeded the cliff the minimum then there was a, a payment. That payment was it a a percentage of revenue? Was it uh, like how do they how do they calculate what that payment would be? Uh, so it's basically between cliff and and max. There was just like a linear calculation from that amount of money to that amount of money and wherever you are on the journey. So so again, once we'd got over the cliff in the first year, it was like like literally everything we bring in now is. Is, is money you know there's it's incredibly motivating uh but i guess where it doesn't motivate is if you're not going to hit the cliff you can't you can't sandbag revenue because the numbers just keep getting higher and higher uh, so right so your two numbers are higher than your one numbers yeah it just keeps scaling and scaling and scaling so if effectively if you miss one year you're done you're, you're done basically um, yeah but it but it was very Again, it was the structure was very simple. It was revenue, 
it was made clear what counted as revenue. And because we were the only Amazon capability within Brain Labs, there was no fighting over is that your Amazon revenue or my Amazon revenue? So the deal was structured great. Um, I think I'd, I just didn't know how to drive it in the same way once I was in a larger business. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if that, I don't know if that was genuinely, I didn't know how to do it or if the motivation had gone because I've, I've got the kind of day one. It, it wasn't intentionally. I didn't, there was certainly no intention to go, well, I'm fine now. So it doesn't matter. But, but I guess you don't know what's going on subconsciously in your mind. But I definitely, I definitely really struggled to, to operate in the same way because uh, Molesy, everything, everything we did was about kind of pace and we'll worry about the risk if it, if it comes and then deal with that. Whereas once you're in a bigger business that's got a bit more regulation, you can't, you can't be as gung ho. Um, yeah. And that's probably where my skill set. So you be. left after, you left shortly after the end of year one. Yeah, I think it was almost exactly a year and a half. Yeah. Okay. All, all in good terms because I, I I wanted to make sure that they didn't see it as me abandoning them if I left. So you know, we we had lots of discussions about is that is everything integrated? And it became quite clear at the end that I was I'd integrated very well, meaning I had nothing to do. You were redundant. Yeah. How, what was what was Dan's reaction when you first told him you thought maybe you were you were going to call it? Um, I think probably I think probably because it was it was clear we probably wouldn't hit the numbers for the next opportunity. Um, it was probably expected. I think as a founder himself, I think he understands. You know, there's there's just something in your blood, isn't there, that you just want to get going. And and um, I mentioned in in one of the blogs, another plug, um, when when I when I kind of sold the business, signed signed the DocuSign, I was I was waiting for this kind of feeling of euphoria, and it didn't come. And then we thought, well, maybe once the money hits the bank, and we waited and stared at it, and it didn't come. So I'd lost faith that this feeling exists. Uh, but actually, two weeks ago, or whatever it was, that I left Brain Labs, nothing, nothing negative towards Brain Labs, but just knowing that I could kind of just do whatever I wanted now. I think it was the freedom that I was looking for, not the money. I guess it's, it's the impact that the money has. But just knowing that I'd kind of come out the other end of it, everyone's still friends. People consider it was a good deal, investors, employees, et cetera. And just that, just like every muscle in me relaxed <laughs> and, and then quickly started stressing that what am I going to do? I've got no emails. Like who, no one even knows my phone number on this phone. <laughs> but that was, you know, that's a good problem to have. It's an amazing story. Congratulations. Are you up for a quick lightning round before I let you go? Oh, okay. Let's try it. All right. What was the most questionable slash slimy? trick a potential acquirer tried to play on you in those uh, dozen or so failed attempts to buy your business? Um, so the worst one was, it was one of the big network agencies. Um, and I think it was like a global COO. It was like, it was one of the big guys. 
was on the call to close the deal, and it was, and it was just the most horrendous, like skin crawling pitch about how they were so much better than we are already. They don't really need us, but I'd be an idiot not to take the deal. And and you could just tell as we left the call, he was thinking it's in the bag. And it, and yeah, as soon as you hang up, it's like geez, not not for five hundred million would I take that deal. <laughs> Uh, but there, there was no underhand tricks from anyone. It was just, it was interesting to see the different pitching styles. You know, I went golfing with my kids the other day uh, for the first time, I think ever, maybe, maybe I once did it. And I had to describe what a mulligan is to my youngest <laughs> mulligan being, of course, when you duff the first shot on the first tee, you get a second chance without a cut, you know, uh, deducting from your score. If you had a mulligan, to sell your company all over again, what one thing might you do differently? Because so I think the only thing I would do differently is I would, d- during the running of the company, I would have focused more on EBITDA and less about just, just chasing growth for a couple of reasons. It would have given us more opportunities for an acquire that valued EBITDA over growth. It would have opened, you know, opened up more options. But also once we got within once we entered the earn out, we would have had more levers to pull. I guess when when you don't have EBITDA, well, I guess if, if you're if your earn out's based on EBITDA, you can grow the revenue and reduce the costs. Whereas if it's based on revenue, you can that's your only option. There's no point in reducing costs because it has no impact. We just heard about the highest moment of your exit being the freedom you felt two weeks ago. What was the lowest emotional ebb you reached during the process of selling? Oh, during selling. Um, well, probably after, you know, the the first year of the internet when I realized this is going to get harder rather than easier. Uh, but actually the process of selling, I kind of weirdly enjoyed. I quite, even though it took over my life for four, four months and it was just basically answering horrible questions and reviewing documents. There was, it was almost like someone was just giving me doing like an MOT on the business because you kind of create this thing and, and they, you know, that they were jokingly saying, Oh, we'll see if we can find any skeletons. And I was kind of laughing, thinking if you find any, I don't know they're there, you know, but we've got an entity in Brazil. We've got one in Spain. We've got one in Hong Kong. We've probably done something wrong somewhere. So it's quite nice to get that kind of bill of health. Um, <laughs> That's interesting. But yeah, I th- there was no low point during the process really. It went, Brain Labs did absolutely everything they said. The deal we ended up with was word for word what they put on the LOI. Um, so yeah, I think we were just really lucky. That's amazing. It's amazing. You know, it sounds like you had some great investors who gave you the benefit of their wisdom and experience. What else did you do to educate yourself about the process of exiting selling? Is there Are there any resources you can point our listeners to that that they might benefit from? Finderon.com, the best place to find out how it feels to exit your business, of course. Um, I think I think there's a real lack of information. Like if you search what is an earnout, you're just going to get loads of lawyers saying, here's how to structure an earnout. Uh, so I think the fact that you're you're doing this podcast, you know, this is it's information you just can't get online. Uh, so I think my advice to anyone that's thinking about exiting a business 
is is get you know find some kind of advisor that's done it you know don't don't find someone that you know knows all there is to know about exiting a business find someone that's done it and they can be like watch out for that double down on that um be prepared for that um that'd be my advice what did you buy yourself to commemorate the win uh what did we do so we tried to buy we tried to buy a house straight away but we kept getting outbid and i was like surely this this isn't how it's meant to be you know i meant to walk in and just like throw some money on the floor and go we'll take it but we just kept losing out on the houses we wanted so um i think the first thing that we did that i would never have done before we, um we always used to go to twickenham to watch england rugby and i always wondered what it was like behind the scenes in those hospitality suites so we just booked four tickets went with a couple of friends and lived the high life but then I t- and then i I tried to take my dad to it because we always used to go together. And he was like, no, that's not how it is. We go in the normal seats. And then I finally managed to take him and we went in the good seats. And then the next time we went back to the normal seats, he was like, it's just not the same. So <laughs> we experienced it, but then we reverted back to standard. This is, this is watching England and the uh, Six Nations? Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. Well, that's fun. I uh, I would love to do that with my dad one day as well. So have to put that on my bucket list. Um, the blog is founderon.com. Um, Chris, where else can people reach out to you on social? What are the best places to do that? The only place is LinkedIn. I'd, I'd kind of, uh, I think I probably had a Facebook account about 10 years ago, but LinkedIn is where I spend my time. And yeah, it would be great to hear from people that have exited or are thinking about exiting and uh, any ideas for blog posts, um, you know, are more than welcome because that is, I'm a full-time blogger for the foreseeable future. <laughs> and rugby fan. I uh, I will put all those in the show notes at builtthesouth.com, your LinkedIn profile, the link to founderon.com. Um, Chris, thanks for doing this. No, thanks for having me. Great to chat. And there you have it for today's episode between John and Chris. If you enjoyed today's episode, then as always, be sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And if you want to help support this show, then you can either head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review or share this podcast out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would truly benefit from listening to today's episode. Also, as a reminder, if you want to watch this full interview, you can do so over at our YouTube channel. Head over to YouTube and type in at Built to Sell Radio, where there you can watch the full video interviews. Again, for show notes, including everything referenced in today's episode, including the article that I referenced at the very beginning, you can head over to our show notes page, which can be found at builttosell.com. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering, and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. Also, as a reminder, if you know of a guest who'd be a great fit to be right here on Built to Sell Radio, you can nominate them by heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate. There you'll have the opportunity to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I'm Colin Morgan, and we'll talk to you again next week.